Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, in in Isaiah 36, the chapter immediately before this one, these messengers who come from Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, meet up with Hezekiah's uh, advisors, and we're told that they meet with them at a very particular place. They met with them in Isaiah 36, we're told, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. This is a spot along the wall to Jerusalem. And it's actually the same spot where years earlier in Isaiah 7, we read the story of Isaiah meeting with Hezekiah's father, Ahaz. And really their question in that same spot, Isaiah is using that to draw our attention to the fact that these two men, Ahaz and Hezekiah, are both being put in the same place, being put in the same position and being pressed with the same question. Basically this. Will you trust God or will you look to save yourselves? Will you trust the salvation of God or will you look elsewhere to find salvation? In this case, uh, where they went, uh, where Ahaz, the father, went was to Egypt to make an alliance uh, with the Egyptians to defend them. And now the king of Assyria comes and he's basically pressing that question again Who are you going to trust? Will you trust in me? Will you trust in your alliance with the, with, the, uh, with the Egyptians? Or will you trust in your God to deliver you? Notice he says, look at what happened to all of the other nations that chose to trust their gods, right? Their cities are in heaps of ruins and their gods are in a pile of ash with them because we've come through and their gods have failed them and we've burned them. So who are you going to trust? When under threat, when your faith is being tested, who will you trust? Is the question that's being put to Ahaz. It's the question that's put to Hezekiah here. And in so many ways, it's the question that's put to each of us. Right? Who will we trust? When life is difficult, when we don't know the future, when the way ahead for us seems uncertain, who do we trust? There's two verses in the scriptures that I think really uh, paint this picture where we live our Christian lives of trust. The first is the way that the author of Hebrews describes Abraham's faith. When Abraham was called by God to set out from his country and to go uh, into what would eventually become the land of Canaan, but he didn't know that. In that great hall of faith chapter of Hebrews chapter 11, the author says this, he followed God, but he did not know where he was going. Right? So much of our lives is lived trusting or trying to trust when we don't know where that trust is going to lead, where we don't know what the future holds or where we're going. And then later, Paul writing to Timothy says this, he says, there's so much that we don't know about life, but what I do know, 1 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed 
right? And in between those two things, I don't know where, but I know who. We, t- we live our lives, right? Trust in God is worked out in that place where we don't know where, we don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know why, but we can know who. So many of the circumstances of our lives are unknown to us. We don't know how our health is going to hold, how our job is going to go, how our kids are going to turn out, how our marriage is going to be. Right? So much we don't know. We don't know where. We don't know how. We don't know when. But the promise of faith is that you can know who. In the midst of all that you don't know, there is one that you can know. There's one that you can trust So that when you don't know where you're going, you can trust the one who leads. When you don't know how, it's all going to come together. You can trust the one who holds your life in his hands. When you don't know all around you, you can know the one that we trust. And that's the question that's put to Hezekiah here. In the midst of all you don't know, you don't know much about the Assyrians. You don't know much about how you're going to stand up against them. You don't know much about uh, how to withstand a siege coming from the north like this. You don't know if your sons are going to inherit your throne one day or if you're going to be toppled. You don't know how. You don't know when or where. But will you trust in the who that you do know? Will you trust in your God who sustained you and watched out for you and got you to this place? And we see over the course of Hezekiah's life that it's not always easy. He has his setbacks. But by and large, he chooses a different course than his father chose. That by and large, he chooses a posture of faith as the king of Judah. And it's worth noting on this day when we've just ordained and commissioned new leaders for our church, that the posture, the, the faithfulness of leadership among God's people really matters. Right? It matters in all of our lives whether we choose a posture of self-willed independence or humble trust. That matters for all of us, no matter who you are. But it's especially among God's people when we're in a place of leadership that it really, really matters, not only for ourselves, but for all that we touch, for all that we lead, whether we do so from a place of self-reliance or from a posture of faith. And trust. And so, what we're going to look at this morning briefly, by way of a bit of a charge to our leadership, as well as I think for all of us in the various capacities in life in which we lead, is what leadership by faith and not by sight looks like. What it looks to lead in God's church and among his people by faith. The first is that faithful leadership is leadership in repentance. Faithful leadership is leadership in repentance. Notice uh, Hezekiah's immediate reaction on hearing that Sennacherib is at the gates, that his kingdom is at threat. His first reaction, as soon as he heard it, 37.1, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Right? This posture, the first impulse of his heart is to take a posture of repentance, right? This is, I think, different than maybe I would approach this in myself or that maybe we're inclined to approach something like this. When you find that you've got a giant threat right on your doorstep, right? I think if it was me, I might be Googling how to survive a siege, 
right? Or trying to figure out, oh, let me, let me get my generals in here so we can figure out what we're going to do. Let me uh, count the treasury so I can figure out how much money we have so that we can go and buy weapons. Let me figure out how much food we have to figure out how long we can hold up. But before Hezekiah does any of that, he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and he goes into the temple. He realizes in that moment that it's not Sennacherib who's their biggest threat, that it's sin, right? That the main problem that they have to deal with isn't an external threat from beyond, but that it's sin within. And that that sin, he's not exempt from it because he's king, right? What does he not do? He doesn't declare 40 days of fasting and repentance for those people out there. He rips his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ash. He takes a posture of repentance. Self-righteous leadership is leadership that trusts in our own goodness, our own smarts, our own wisdom, our own power. But gospel leadership, leadership by faith, is one that begins with a posture of humble repentance, that begins by saying, look, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I'm not any less of a sinner than I was the day before I became a pastor, right? And those, there wasn't something magic that happened to Hal or to Ed when they became elders or to the deacons when they became deaconesses or to, the, uh, or to the deacons when they became deacons, deaconesses, right? There's not something, there's not a magic potion that they step down off of the stage and cease to sin, cease to doubt, cease to struggle, right? That to be a leader in a gospel-centered, grace-centered community is to be a legend because, right? It's to say, look, I don't get to be the pastor here because I'm the best Christian, because I have the best marriage or the most perfect family, right? No, my, my posture here is because I know myself to be a giant mess of a sinner who needs Jesus every day of my life, right? And the day that I stop being that or saying that is the day that I'm no longer qualified to be a pastor. And it's the same for all of our other leaders in this church. That the first step of leadership is to tell the truth about ourselves, about our struggles and about our darkness and about our doubt and about our sin, about our worries, about our troubles. It's to be willing to wear those things openly. Not so that we can kind of stumble around in morbid introspection, not so that we can uh, just heap self-doubt on ourselves, but so that we're capable together of leading one another to the gospel, towards the only hope for sinners, towards the only grace that we have in this life. Those of you who are stepping into leadership in the church, you're coming into leadership in the church, not just our church, but the church globally, at kind of a funny time to be becoming a church leader, right? If it's not uh, readily apparent, the church in our country is under a bit of a, cre- a crisis of credibility, right? Everywhere we look, everywhere we turn, it seems like we're hearing stories of corruption and abuse, hypocrisy in the church. So it is a sobering thing to say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. (laughs) I want to be a part of that group of church leaders that are constantly getting exposed as giant frauds in the media and everywhere else. To say, yeah, I'll throw in my lot with them. But listen, the only answer to the church's crisis of credibility 
which is ultimately a crisis of hypocrisy, is honesty and repentance. It's honesty. You know, it, it won't take long. It didn't take me long to realize that the only way, there are only two ways to avoid being a hypocrite as a Christian, let alone a Christian leader. Life, the moral perfection of Jesus. That's one. Okay, so you can, new elders, deacons, deaconesses, one road you can go down is to leave here, stop sinning, love your neighbor perfectly, love your God perfectly, be so spotless in your sinlessness that there is no occasion for scandal in your life. That's door number one. Democracy lives in that gap between the two where you're claiming a righteousness and then living out something else. But the death of hypocrisy is in honesty. Right? To say, yeah, look, I, I try. I really am endeavoring. What did we just take by vow? To ordain the profession of the gospel with my life. Right? To live a life that's in fitting, that's in, in keeping with being a follower of Jesus. And then to be honest about the gaps. To be honest about my anger, about my sin, about my lust, about my greed, about my pride. To be willing to be honest about the weakness of our lives. And the only way to do that is to take the posture of the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote the majority of our books of the New Testament, the one that we look to uh, in some traditions as a saint, right? to take the posture that God, Jesus Christ came for sinners, of whom I am the very worst, right? of whom I am the worst sinner that I know to lead with that kind of openness, humility, and honesty. So leadership by faith is necessarily leadership and repentance. Hezekiah tears his clothes. He puts on the sackcloth. He goes into the temple. And then secondly, it's leadership by faith alone. Right? It's a commitment to leadership uh, that lives by faith and not by sight. One that trusts God and risks faith instead of just what can be counted and managed and known. Right, Hezekiah repents, he covers himself in ash, but then where does he go? First he sends his messengers, and then he goes into the temple. He goes into the place uh, where God is found. He goes into the place where God's mercy lives. He goes into the place where sacrifices were made over and over and over again for the sins of the people. Right? He said, look, I can, I can identify with the sin of my people. I can repent. I can put on the signs of mourning and repentance. But I can't ultimately deal with the sins of my people. Right? I'm not, I'm not able to, to do away with the guilt of my people. But I can go to the place where sin gets dealt with. I can go into the house of God where sacrifices are made, where atonement is made. I can put on the signs of bearing sin, of repentance, and then go into the place of grace. Right? This is why no human leader, no human leader, no pastor, elder, deacon, no guru, no professor, no anybody, can ultimately deal with the problem of sin, can deal with our deepest problems. Right, what we can do is go together to the place where sin gets dealt with. Where Jesus, our great leader, took on to himself not merely the symbols of his people's sin, but took on our sin. And then went into the presence of God and paid the price of our sin. 
so that we can live by faith in his one sacrifice, knowing that our sin is dealt with and done away with. Right? If the biggest problems in our lives aren't the problems out there, it's not the uh, threats that are on the outside, but it's sin, then the people who are trusting Jesus to deal with sin have incredible reasons for faith and joy and trust and optimism. Because we know that Jesus is actively working, forgiving us and bringing us before the presence of God. But then in the midst of that, he goes into the temple and he's looking for one person. He's looking for Isaiah. Right? The prophets and the kings in ancient Israel had an interesting relationship. The kings led the people, right? They made decisions. They administered the state. They led the army. But they were always accountable to the prophets, The prophets brought God's word and his perspective into their lives. The idea was that the king has power, but he doesn't have absolute power. That the king has authority, but he's under the authority of God and his word through the prophet. And as you might guess, uh, that meant that the kings didn't always like the prophets. Right? Kings, dictators, presidents, rulers don't always like being called to account. Right? They don't like learning that their word isn't eternal and binding and authoritative, but that they are under authority. And so most of the prophets and the kings spend a a lot of their lives kind of playing cat and mouse with each other. The kings want to do something. They ask the prophet to bless it. The prophet says, no, the king runs away, does it anyway. But here, a faithful leader in repentance by faith goes to the prophet seeking God's word. He recognizes in this moment his powerlessness, his lack of authority, and his need for a word from beyond himself. And so he's recognizing that faithful leadership means submission to God's word. That it means that we're not looking for our own way, our own wisdom, our own intuitions to guide us through life. But we're looking to submit our lives, our wisdom, to the wisdom of God. And faithfulness always looks this way. It says, look, I don't know everything. I don't know all the right answers. I don't know what we should do. I don't know how you're going to provide. I don't know everything. But in my posture of not knowing, I'm going to go to where I can find truth. I'm going to go to where I can find wisdom. I'm going to go to where the way is lit ahead of me. I'm going to submit my life and my words to God's life and God's word. Faithful leadership means trusting God, not just kind of in the theoretical mental ascent to God's goodness or His power, but in the daily work of decision-making, in the daily work of ministry and caring for souls and counseling the broken and making decisions for the church. It's to live by a daily trust, a daily submission to God's Word, a daily trust in His power to lead. Eugene Peterson uh, pastor, now deceased, wrote a wonderful book called The Way of Jesus, in which he reminds us that we're not allowed to do Jesus' work in the world's way, right? That you can't do the work of Jesus in the way of the world. You have to do the work of Jesus in the way of Jesus. That means that in in Christian leadership, the, the, the ends don't justify the means. You can't say, well, look, I know Jesus wants a great big church, Jesus wants a mega church, so if we bring in lights and lasers and smoke machines, that'll get that. 
right? We can't say that I know Jesus wants to provide for his church, so no matter how we handle the money or how we manipulate people into giving, it's fine because he wants his church to have money. No, it means that we have to do the work of Jesus in the way of Jesus. That we have to seek to love people with the love of Jesus. That we have to try to handle our resources with the open-handed hand of Jesus. That we have to try uh, to lead with the humility and gentleness of Jesus versus the bravado and strength that so often passes for leadership in the world. The leadership by faith is leadership not just towards Jesus' ends, but by Jesus' means. And then finally, leadership by faith always keeps its eye on the glory of God. But it's leadership focused on the glory of God. Look at how Hezekiah ends his prayer at the end of our reading. He says this, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hands so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Right, of all of the reasons that Hezekiah could have brought to God to answer his prayer. Right, God, answer my prayer because I'm repentant or because I'm faithful. God, answer my prayer because your people are going to die if you don't. And you, we know you love your people and you want good things to happen to them. No, what does he say to God? God, save us so that the whole world will know that you are the only Lord. Save us so that you can receive glory for who you are before the world, right? Don't save us for my sake. Don't save us for their sake. Save us for your sake so that your name will be known as great among all of the nations of the earth. So that when people, when the people of the world look at King Sennacherib's trophy case with all of the idols that he's dethroned and humiliated, that they won't find your name, Yahweh, in his case but that you will be the God who defends us and protects us so that your name will be great among the nations. And God does this. God, uh, he hints at it in this bit, but he, he confuses Sennacherib to make him think that he's dealing with uh, a rebellion back home. So he leaves and takes the army and goes back. Most of them die and his people are delivered. Right? He does the work. God does the work in a way that he never would have predicted, that Hezekiah never would have known. And he does receive glory as the one who defeated the, the army of the Assyrians without lifting a hand. And for those of us in church leadership, this is a good reminder that only the glory of God is a sufficient motivator for ministry. Right? Only the glory of God is a good enough reason to seek to build his church and his kingdom. Yes, there are other incredible reasons to give your life to church leadership, right? To see the blessing in the lives of our neighbors, to see the poor cared for, uh, to see God use you in the lives of hurting people, to see the church built up and knit together, to see people thriving under the care of your leadership and your service. But listen, all of those things can fail. 
Right, despite the stirring uh, introduction from the author of Hebrews that they would make your life a joy as a leader, they won't always. Right, leadership will not always be pure joy. Ministry will not always be pure joy. Nothing that matters in life really is. Right, parenting it has its days, <laughs> but it, but it's not you know sunshine and roses all the time. Work is tough. Marriage is hard. School is hard. Like all of the things that we do that matter are going to be difficult at times. And there's going to be times where it's going to be tough to keep showing up. And the thing that will help you to keep showing up is an overwhelming desire for the glory of God. To see God's church thrive. Not so that everybody looks around and goes, man, in town's going great. Dave must be a heck of a pastor. They must have a heck of a group of deacons. Right? Not for our own glory but so that the world looks and sees the glory and beauty of God. Listen, y'all took a vow that was one of the ones that you just took, that you subscribe to the system of doctrine taught in the Westminster Confession and Catechisms as teaching what the Bible teaches. In the first one of those vows, the first part of the Westminster Shorter Catechism that you just told me you believe in, you told all of us in front of God and everybody, says that the chief end of every man, woman, and child on earth, the reason that you're on this planet is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Right? You may do that in poverty or in riches. You may may do that as a married person or as a single person. You may do that uh, in Jacksonville or elsewhere. But the reason you are on this earth, every one of us, is to lend our lives our voices, our service, our time, and our treasure to the glory of God in the faith that as we do so, we will enjoy Him, right? That He will delight us, that He'll satisfy us, that He'll meet with us, and that we will enjoy His presence, not just in this life, but forever. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on the main thing. That you would help us to keep our eyes and our hearts tuned to your glory and our joy. Lord, that you would help us uh, through the joys and difficulties of life, of church, of ministry, of all of the different places that we serve. That you would help us, Lord, to keep our eyes set on your glory. And that you would be glorified in our efforts. That you would be glorified as we repent of our sin, as we trust you, and as we serve our neighbors. That you would glorify yourself through our lives and through our church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.